Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn on London Radio. Welcome, welcome to this October episode of Buildings on Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, and Buildings on Air is, of course, the show where we talk about left politics and architecture, sometimes more of one and less of the other. Uh, but I'm really excited for today's show. Um, we're going to talk about uh, the landmark ordinance uh, here in Chicago's Pilsen neighborhood, um, which touches on all kinds of uh, issues of gentrification and things like this. Um, and yeah, we've we've kind of been on a little bit of an urban policy kick, but um, I'm really excited for this episode. Even if you're not listening from Chicago, um, you'll hear lots of interesting things about community organizing and how you know something as simple as a landmark district uh, can really have significant political implications. Um, so I'm here with Diego Morales, who is a resident of Pilsen. Uh, he actually works in the 25th Ward Alderman's Office, which covers Pilsen. Um, but he's really here in his capacity as a DSA member. Diego and I are both Chicago DSA members. Somehow we've never met in person, uh, but we run in similar circles. Uh, and Diego, I'm really happy to have you here on the show. How's it going? It's going great. Thank you. And I'm, I'm happy to be here, Kiefer. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Buildings on Air diehards will remember that we actually had uh, the 25th Ward Alderman, Byron Sigcho Lopez, on the show like two or three years ago before he was an alderman. And, uh, you know, Diego, I was telling you, clearly, uh, you know, Buildings on Air was, you know, key to his meteoric rise. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely like our little niche radio show, uh, you know, definitely, definitely was, was the reason why, uh, why why he's in office now. Uh, That was it. That was it. Factual. (laughs) Yeah, no, of course, uh, Byron is an amazing community organizer. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's why, that's why he's there. And, and Diego, you're an amazing community organizer, uh, in your own right. And, um, yeah, so just let's get into it. So for those who don't know about what's going on in Pilsen, sort of generally, maybe you can give us the kind of 10,000 foot view of the neighborhood, what it's going through. Um, and then we can talk about how, how this landmark district proposal, uh, is is kind of where that's coming from and, and what that's doing. Sure. Yeah. So it's, it is a bit of a long story, so I'll try to be as concise as possible. So Pilsen currently is an ethnic neighborhood of Chicago. It is uh, one of the, it's one of the most prolific um, Mexican neighborhoods in particular in the city. Um, I believe it's upwards of 80% plus of the residents are Mexican and even more than that are of some kind of Lat- Lat- uh, Latino identity. Um, the culture is very is very apparent here. The neighborhood, when you come here, it, it has a certain look, it has a certain sound, it has a certain smell. Um, uh, the language, the languages that people speak here are different. It's a very special place. Um, and uh, it's been that way for many, many decades. Um, it's been a working class neighborhood. In addition to that, an immigrant neighborhood. And, and as such, um, there have been pressures, particularly housing pressures, economic development pressures that have um, been pushing people out through the process of gentrification. And this has happened again over many, many decades. Um, I, I want to say in the, in the 90s and even the early 2000s, there were sort of waves of gentrification that the community had organized and fought back against um, under the previous, uh, for people who know Chicago politics, the previous daily administration too had this uh, Chicago 21 plan, which is which was this, you know, grandmaster carving up of neighborhoods and crafting it a certain way to the benefit of, mm-hmm. you know, wealthier folks um, that was actually uh, fought back and, and uh, necessarily defeated here in the neighborhood. Um, and we're experiencing the same thing again today, um, where there is, um, I want to say in the past 15 years, there's a study of the census tracks, essentially, that more than 10,000 families have been displaced outside of Pilsen, almost the vast majority of them uh, Mexican and Latinx. And um, we're seeing those same pressures. There's uh, affluent people moving in. There's, and this, this comes with a lot, of, um, a lot of implications for the quality of life and the kind of life that the people who have lived here, who have made this community and this neighborhood very special, um, that impacts them. This is um, 
it's economic, like I mentioned, through uh, displacement and housing pressures, increasing rents, increasing costs of living. There's cultural mm-hmm. aspects to this too, where the because it was such an it is such an enclave of of say Mexican residents in the city of Chicago. It 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 there's all kinds of events and celebrations and um, just cultural sort of totems that that live here, um, music that comes out of here, um, etc. Festivals. And, um, but I guess to go back a little bit too, that kind of makes it interesting when we're talking about this landmark thing is that before it was also a bohemian and Czech and Eastern European immigrant community before it was a Mexican Mm -hmm. community. Um, it wasn't really until the building of the university of Illinois, Chicago, um, where the Mexican community was before, um, but once that, uh, that university was built and developing, it had essentially pushed residents into this neighborhood, Pilsen. Pilsen is uh, is named after a city in in Bohemia, or was Bohemia, for example. And so, that's somewhat of a general snapshot. And then today, what's occurring right now, and what is what is the landmark ordinance? So, I want to say it was under the previous administration, uh, the mayor Rob Emanuel, and the previous alderman, now disgraced alderman Daniel Solis of the ward, had worked with uh, the Department of Planning and Development on a landmark district designation for this corridor in Pilsen along 18th Street. And 18th Street is essentially like the, um, it's the most culturally significant um, in Pilsen and uh, along with, I would say 26th Street as well. But people who lived here, especially Mexicans who grew up here and lived here, they sometimes call the neighborhood Ocho, which means 18th. Um, <laughs> that's just the significance of that street. Um, and that's where this proposed designation is um, is meant to to take place. So they crafted this ordinance, um, DPD. The way that the landmark districting process works is they they propose it to city council, and um, there's certain parts of it that already take effect. You know things like permit review. Um, mm-hmm. Anybody who lives in the district that wants to do uh, maintenance or repairs, especially on any exterior or outward facing parts of the property, they have to go through a very specialized permitting process. And um, and this is this is part of the reason why after this was uh, proposed, there was massive, massive um, public backlash against it. And um, I want to say since the outset and there was also just the the suspicion of it happening under those administrations. People in this neighborhood were not (laughs) fans of the previous alderman at all or anything that would come out of his office. And so they were keenly suspicious, as well as under the previous mayoral administration, uh, Rahm Emanuel. And so, um, and so, yeah, once upon scrutiny, once it was presented, you know, it's been over, it's been nearly a year and a handful of months since it, uh, it was introduced. Um, there's been you know, public meetings, there's been commentary and the, um, there's been nearly unanimous opposition against it. Right. Yeah. And the way that the way that I've sort of understood it following following, but not having been directly involved with the kind of activism. I mean, it seems like the the, the sort of, you know, new mayor, the Lightfoot uh, administration, you know, they're they're kind of trying to push this through. And, um, you know, they're, they're kind of making a, a, what I can only describe as a galaxy brain argument that this will help stop gentrification, um, you know, by kind of making the permitting process more difficult. And my, my understanding of, of the critique of that, and, and you just sort of touched on this, is that, well, no, what you're actually doing is making it so that uh, people who already live here if they want to make improvements, won't be able to afford it. And the only people who will be able to afford to kind of go through that more difficult process are sort of uh, developers coming from the outside. Is, is, is that, am I, am I sort of right in understanding that as, as, as the kind of, I don't know, uh, like debate there? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's how the city presents this thing, which is what's kind of insidious about it is it's very, it's kind of patronizing and condescending in the sense, oh, here's something that is going to help save you and your and your neighborhood. Something's going to preserve Pilsen. But I would say the easiest way to boil down um, how the community sees it, and this is just something you see ubiquitous among the residents, is that this landmark designation, in effect, protects buildings, but it does not protect people. 
And right. it it was even in the context of these buildings, when it when this was, say, a Czech and Bohemian neighborhood, many of these buildings were community centers and cultural centers and settlement houses in, in the era of, of the Jane Addams Settlement House. And they were institutions that were built for a enclave community to protect itself, to enrich itself, to develop itself. And that is exactly what the legacy of, of Pilsen sort of is, and that is sort of at risk. So just to kind of um, get to the point of why there is such opposition is that because this designation basically makes it very expensive, especially for homeowners to live in the district. Um, as you had mm-hmm. mentioned, um, a simple a simple permit that in a previous instance should just be $150 is now costing, mm-hmm. you know, it's costing, uh, for example, there's a Carnitas, Carnitas restaurant, very famous on 18th Street, that is going through this issue right now, where they're just trying to update their canopy. And previously, mm-hmm. again, it was just a, just a maybe a little, maybe a couple hundred dollars, and now it's been so tied up through this landmark commission process that they're having to pay upwards of four thousand dollars for something that's very simple. Likewise, a simple window replacement, a window that maybe costs a couple hundred dollars, is now at least easily three or four times that, and everything right. has to go through these processes of historic review and and yeah there there's um and going back to the sort of condescension and how this is uh, proposed is for example they say okay what's a what's a the question the community asks what's a financial economic incentive or benefit to the residents and, and the city goes well a part of the ordinance is you there are possible tax breaks that you mm-hmm. can be eligible for you can have a property tax freeze for up to 12 years um, but the fine print on even that is that in order to qualify for that, you'd have to spend 25% of the assessed value of your property in order to be eligible for that. And so the only people that would be able to do the, those kinds of things are exactly the rich developers, are these you know big brain urban planners that want to carve up the neighborhood, um, especially the people. They were able, they're able to afford those kinds of things, but the actual people who live here, who make this community so historic and so special, they're not able to afford those kinds of things. And we've already seen like many homeowners express dismay. Some have even left. It's it's already causing displacement. And mm-hmm. and that's sort of that's sort of the the crux of it is that the thing that makes a place special and in fact what has made Pilsen itself historical was this glue between the residents of a community, especially residents who share a common history, who share a common homeland, whatever it happens to be, and protecting each other and looking out for each other, which Pilsen as a community has definitely lived up to that and more. However, like this particular ordinance is just, it's a very clear example of, you know, very highly educated people, policy wonks, such as the uh, commissioner of the Department of Planning, Maurice Cox, and the mayor and the previous one of they think they know what's better for this community than the residents do themselves. And they, yeah. they're they offering this sort of ordinance that on the face of it may sound nice, but as soon as you investigate a little deeper, it's actually, it seems much more insidious than that because it's the effect right. of it is that it's going to, it could very well erase so many of the people along the most important street in the neighborhood and open the doors for only the very wealthy to be able to operate into the area. Right. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting to think about the Landmark Commission. I mean, you know, um, I've sort of experienced this from the architect side of things, right, where, um, you know, the building department and the zoning department, um, especially especially the kind of building side, they, in my interactions with them, they really are committed to the sort of like health, safety and welfare of the public. And in Chicago, we don't have what's called design review. Like a lot of cities and towns have this where, um, you know, any new building is sort of subject to, you know, like literally aesthetic review uh, by Mm -hmm. a, a sort of uh, impaneled group of people before it gets built. And I think Chicago has really benefited from from not having that. But the, the exception, though, uh, really is when you get into the, these these sort of landmark permit processes. The way that the Landmark Commission works is they, they sort of have a layer of bureaucrats um, who, who evaluate proposals initially 
Um, and, and sometimes they'll approve things and sometimes not, but, but more often than not, they will make a recommendation to a landmark commission that's been appointed uh, by the mayor, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And, um, and so, so it kind of introduces uh, a real point of, of political leverage from the mayor's office uh, about what does and doesn't get built in a neighborhood that that wasn't there before. And, and you know, I know I, I've met people on the Landmark Commission. A lot of them take their jobs very seriously and in good faith. But, but that, you know, some of them don't, I'm sure, you know, and also like, uh, and it's just the kind of matter, matter of, of, of what could happen here as well. Um, so, you know, just, it, 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 it's, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I find it sort of endlessly fascinating. And, and we were talking about this a little bit beforehand, but Pilsen is already a national landmark district which doesn't really mean a whole lot. Uh, as far as the city code goes, it means that they'll give you sort of breaks in the amount of parking spaces you're required to have, which is good, I think. Um, and also some tax breaks, although, uh, you know, those you, you can, those can be difficult to actually get, um, you know, which is, which is a problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, I I do want to say also, like, it's not that people here do love the look of of the buildings and the look of Pilsen. It does have a very historic nature. And mm-hmm. I know that, you know, I, I've only lived here for about five years, but even so, like it, it's, uh, you know, talking with friends of mine who have grown up here and who lived there all their life, we walk down the street and we see a building that was just cute and maybe it housed a bunch of beautiful local businesses that have existed there historically and then it gets demolished and in its place is some gray-faced you know lego block lifeless kind of monstrosity and that's it is heartbreaking it totally is um and i don't i don't want to and the community certainly doesn't from what i've seen doesn't like they they understand that and they cherish that and, and they value that perspective of maintaining the buildings as they look. And I think there's, there's interesting implications too about the fact that this is a low density neighborhood um, and, you know, versus other neighborhoods that are very dense and have say high rises um, that you, that many, many people live in. And, and in my opinion, it's just kind of an offhand observation is that because of the low density, because the nature of the buildings that, that are here, it almost forces a sort of uh, proximity among the residents and a sort of like interaction among them. Whereas you see in mm-hmm. n- neighborhoods that have high rises and high density, every this actually can be very isolating as a resident. You could feel very unconnected yeah. to your community. And in, in, in a weird way, like I think that the historical nature of these buildings contributes to that whole community glue and that, and that, that factor of, of the fact that this community is very, it is beautiful in the fact that it, it advocates for itself and it has an identity. Just yeah. as the yeah. just as the people before it, yeah, it's a really interesting point because you know a lot of a lot of exactly these sort of urban policy wonks will sort of uh, harp on on density as as its own inherent good, and um, and you know I think density can be good, but all, at the end of the day, it's just a number, right? And and I think uh, you know pointing pointing out that you know high rise living can, is 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 sort of very alienating. <laughs> I think often gets overlooked because uh, I, I think you're I think you're spot on, and I think anyone who's sort of uh, you know been been out in Pilsen on a on a sort of beautiful Chicago summer or uh, spring or fall day, uh, you know, uh, sees that. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm curious to sort of um, hear more about the kind of activism that's going on um, to resist this landmark ordinance. Uh, you know what what what's what's happening what are the kind of uh next steps here uh you know what what's the current sort of um i don't know <laughs> target for lack of a better word <laughs> so i mean there's clearly a couple of important targets um and i'll give some contextual background for this as well so when the landmark was originally introduced um it was during a transition period like when it was formally introduced, I will say it was mm-hmm. it was in the transition between the Rahm administra- administration and the Lightfoot administration, and as such, the department head of Department of Planning and Development also changed. However, 
Um, the new department head, Maurice Cox, is very emphatically seems to be against any and all um, any and all rational observation of the of the populace's feedback. Is very mm-hmm. for this landmark, um, and you know it's it's interesting to see the context of of that man in particular, as he's someone who I believe was a department head in Detroit in the post bankruptcy era. Um, hmm. that saw a lot of demolitions of public housing buildings and a lot of um, a lot of development of market rate high rises for example which were which were celebrated by him under his administration there and it, and it kind of it's it's just an eerie sort of foreshadowing of what he may intend to do here but um but he is definitely a target because he has been pushing this However, uh, so when it was introduced, there was originally supposed to be a sunset of 365 days a year for the city council, in this case, the, the zoning committee of the city council to vote it down or up mm-hmm. just to have a vote on it to set it in stone. Um, although another very insidious thing about how these landmark districts work in Chicago is if there is no vote, if there is no hard determination by the end of that period, it goes into effect automatically. So oh, wow. there is there's a possible future in, or there was a possible universe in which this landmark would have been voted by literally nobody who was elected, put in unilaterally by a department and a mayor's office, and it would have really severely impacted people's uh, well-being. But um, to again, so Maurice Cox is definitely a target of, of the community. It's very upsetting. He's held community meetings here. People have been very upset with him. Uh, the mayor, again... Um, was also pushing this through the department, but she also had used her emergency powers that were given to her to to address the pandemic earlier this year. Mm. But she used those same parliamentary procedural powers to extend the landmark like probationary period, essentially, uh, an extra six months. And in fact, there's kind of an open question, an open legal question over whether she was actually allowed to do that. But I think to us, it seems like a very clearly improper use of um, of the expanding of her powers as an executive to impose policy here in the neighborhood. So she is also um, she's also on our sites. But also the um, chairman of the zoning committee is is one that the community has been very focused on as well. His name is Alderman Thomas Tunney of the 44th Ward. Um, as chairman of the zoning committee, he uh, he has power to bring these issues up to a vote in committee. Mm. So, which is what basically the alderman's office has been requesting and all the community groups have been requesting. It's like, let's have a vote on this. Um, And in, and in fact, and, and that's sort of the delay. That's why we're still in this situation is that he has thus far refused to abide by this request. Um, And instead he's sort of allowing these things to go along the mayor's timeline an extended six months in which even more people are being displaced, even more people are you know, facing economic hardship in a pandemic when we're already severely hurting. This is like an unprecedented economic crisis, and now there's further pressures. So those are the three sort of main characters on the opposition from the different community groups. And mm-hmm. um, and so how has the organizing sort of happened? It's been very organic, um, particularly with homeowners and people who live in the district they get like it, it they're confronted with it very viscerally whenever they try to do anything on their property because they get a notice oh your permit got stuck in landmark commission or your permit mm-hmm. was denied because it didn't meet historical standards there's also an interesting um interesting addendum to this in that for a lot of this work to happen you'd have to hire expensive engineering and architectural consultants that specialize in historical districts yeah. that as you'd imagine are more expensive than your general, your typical contractor. Um, and there is also an interesting question about, you know, the fact that there are people on the Landmark Commission who, you know, part of their income comes from this kind of consulting. And so Absolutely. we know that, you know, they would they would actually directly financially benefit from something like this. And I should also note there that this, this district, this historical district would be the largest in the city. I think it's over 900 wow. buildings. So, wow. um, yeah, it'd be the biggest one. So as far as the organizing, I mean, like I said, this community is one that has been looking out for itself for a long time. So it kind of it does quite a lot of things on its own. I remember the first public meeting on the landmark was last year, I think in July. 
And mm -hmm. and I think the alderman's office in conjunction with the Landmark Commission helped uh, set up the space, helped, uh, you know, find a space to have it, a very large one. And I think more than 300 people showed up to that. Um, mm. It's just, it, which is really crazy to think about. Like for me, who was there experiencing it, it's like, this, is, this seems like such a niche technical wonky little thing but it really that's it really directly impacts a lot of people they're very skeptical and very concerned um and it was just it was unanimous it was it was it was a bloodbath it was it was <laughs> people were not happy and yeah. many of the people at the landmark commission in downtown they, they didn't have a good day let's just say that um, <laughs> and Ever since then, you know, it's been uh, there are organizations like Pilsen Alliance who have been very vocally against the landmark. Um, recently, they've been collaborating with, for example, the 25th Ward IPO. Uh, the IPO stands for an independent political organization. Um, and then there's just kind of organic collective enclaves, you know, a group of homeowners that know each other. There's there's even a local realty office, uh, Pilsen Realty, that has really taken uh, taken initiative in in collecting affidavits from homeowners um, because for example when the uh, when the landmark was introduced part of the process is they have to collect feedback from the property owners they send a letter out and they can collect um, like affirmations of positive feedback like via an affidavit that the homeowner would sign and I think they got I can't remember the exact number it was tiny it was like five or ten that were mm -hmm. uh, for it and then 65 against um, and that was just at that time. And now, for example, this, this Pilsen Realty Group, in, in conjunction with other just residents in the community, they've collected over 300 affidavits on their own, just, you know, making phone calls, knocking on doors. And it's, again, it's like 95% negative feedback from literally everybody <laughs> that they talk to. Um, and so there's just another way of like, look, this is the community just does not want this. Um, right. There was recently an action that uh, Pilsen Alliance kind of had had spearheaded on Alderman Thomas Tunney's restaurant. He he owns a very yeah. famous restaurant, Ann Sather's. I believe it's in his ward. But um, but yeah, they paid a visit there. Residents paid a visit there, and and made sure that he knew that this was a, this is very concerning. And they were asking for a public um, a public commitment to have a vote and all of this. And and yeah, I mean this this is something that the community has been doing for a very long time. Yeah. And it's not it's not going to be quiet and sit silently as as these things sort of happen. And so that's yeah. kind of where it's at. We're looking forward to the next zoning committee, um, which I believe would be November twenty third, and I think maybe one after that, December fourth. Um, and and those are opportunities to get this thing defeated. Um, but that's kind of that's sort of the organizing landscape in a general sense as it exists. Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn on London Radio. It's, it's interesting to hear about the, the sort of uh, neighborhood real estate office getting involved, you know, it's, it's like... Uh, in, in a, and of course, my 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 sort of uh, you know vulgar leftist leftist philosophy. It's sort of you know the the petit bourgeois uh, uh, sort of organizing in solidarity with um, the working, <laughs> with the working neighborhood, and that that's when you and you know that should be a signal to uh, these sort of developers who are operating at a at a totally different scale, coming from the outside, that they've really stepped in it, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, it's very interesting, you know, bedfellows that are made in this situation. It's just because yeah. we're all we're all neighbors, you know. There are sure. there are landlords and developers and realtors of different size and scale, you know. And, and even yeah. even the ones that exist here locally, they can't compete with the sort of barriers that are put up now that are opening right. up the door to these, you know, mega developers. So, yeah. no, it is it mm -hmm. is very interesting and sometimes very humorous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I I see it. I see it. And uh, from my side of things, you know, I'm, I'm a sole practicing architect, and you know, as you mentioned, ar architecture is 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 uh, it, it can be expensive. Uh, but you know, you, you can absolutely sort of tell the difference between somebody who is sort of uh, committed to their neighborhood, they're living in the neighborhood, uh, and, and and somebody who is sort of 
you know, coming in, coming in and trying to, to make a buck, um, you know, you, you can, you can, you can spot it from a mile away. Um, it's, it's always, it's always really fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And, you know, one thing I did want to touch on sort of related to this and, and sort of speaking about those developers, uh, the sort of, especially the big money developers, you know, it's, it's really fascinating how, how they talk about neighborhoods like Pilsen uh, in the press, right? Like in, in curved and like, you know, uh, their, their sort of own industry publications, you know, there's phrases that get thrown around like emerging neighborhood and things like this. And, you know, um, and I always wonder like, uh, emerging for who, <laughs> you oh, know, yeah. like what is that? It's a, it's a weird phrase, but I'm, I'm wondering if you could speak to, to that a little bit, because I, I think, um, I think it's really a, a, a sort of telltale sign of something fishy going on, uh, when you start to kind of see that stuff bubbling up in, in the media. Oh yeah. It's, 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 it's another, it's, it's this other, it's another example of this crazy condescension that sort of the ruling class, these, these, the wealthy, the developers, these speculators have about these communities that, that, you know, they don't exist just on paper. You know, you read about the neighborhood of Pilsen as, as this wonderful place. It's up and coming. It's, it's been voted, I think numerous times, like one of the top 10 coolest neighborhoods by Forbes magazine, which in reality, in, in those kinds of spaces means you know come come eat up you know what i mean like this is ripe for the taking the thing is there's a lot of strategical aspects uh strategic aspects of the neighborhood that are enticing the fact that it's very close to Mm -hmm. downtown the fact that it has up until relatively recently like been a very working class neighborhood and thus comparatively lower uh lower property values um it has great access to transit it's it has a culture too, and that that's the one thing that I think a lot of people in the, in the neighborhood. It's 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 very insidious because it's not just the erasure of peoples that occurs, right? When you're displacing mm-hmm. people and you're displacing people in an ethnic neighborhood, but it's also a culture, right? Whereas before, right. you could have you could have a very large you know festival celebrating Mexican Independence Day, right? Or Mm-hmm. The history of of Mexican peoples and their struggles, and and across Latin America, and you had this concentration of people who can join together in that conversation and that celebration on the streets and make music together and dance and have these murals that adorn the neighborhood as well. And with with gentrification, with the speculation that that occurs, that also disappears. But it's it's oddly commodified by. Right by the developers, right? It's like, like I, <laughs> and the thing is like, I don't want to, you know, it's the people in the neighborhood that do it too. You know, co- communities are complex, you know, it's not a monolith. Um, there are people who, who embrace these changes because they feel like they can cash in on it. And I think of one sort of cultural signifier is uh, this, this might get me canceled or whatever, but I'm just going to say it. It's like, for example, Frida Kahlo, <laughs> you know, Frida Kahlo is a very well-known legendary uh, historical figure, but it's like, we're now seeing sort of Frida Kahlo branded like everything. <laughs> and, um, it becomes like a like commodified, you know, and like, oh, if I get a Frida Kahlo mural on my luxury, you know, condo or whatever, then all of a sudden it's inclusive and it's of the neighborhood. You saw this with um with Casa Aslan. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of Casa Aslan. Um, and, and this maybe kind of brings it back to the landmark and, and the historical significance of the neighborhood is um like Casa Aslan was a community center that right. that was used to give many people in the neighborhood who did not have a lot of opportunities the opportunities that they needed. Uh, it would be ESL mm-hmm. classes, English learning classes. It could be vocational classes. They would have art classes, after school programs. There's something for everybody in the neighborhood and a building and a community center like Casa Aslan, mm-hmm. which is on Racing Avenue, just a block down from me. And, and oddly enough, like, um, the building is historic. It's it's contributing. It was it was built during the era of Czech and Bohemian immigration, and those communities also were sort of on sort of the front lines of creating these neighborhood institutions, these community institutions. I think they used to call them like Sokols, S O K O L, which were like 
uh, fraternities and then later to be like sororities of, of people who band together and give each other resources and stuff and help each mm -hmm. other out. Um, and that's what happened out of Casa Aslan. It was, it was literally, it used to be a, a Bohemian community center and it was passed on mm -hmm. to a Mexican family who, you know, for a while ran it very well and was, had iconic status in the neighborhood. And outside you had this mural of political figures, like hard hitting revolutionary political figures. You had uh, Zapatista, uh, you know, uh, Zapata was on there. Subcomandante Marcos from Chiapas, Mexico was on there. You had Che Guevara, you had Frida Kahlo. Um, you had to use, you know, it said something. There was a political statement being made there. Um, and over time, uh, the manage uh, the managers weren't able to keep up with it, um, and it was bought out by a luxury developer, City Pads, and it became a luxury development um, with these, I guess, are now trendy community living, communal living spaces. I guess where you all share like a kitchen or something like that, um, and your bedrooms <laughs> are actually tiny, but like the rents are like astronomical. They're like twenty five hundred, thirty five hundred dollars um, for tiny living spaces that you yeah. know single single people live in. And they also whitewashed the mural outside of it. They literally washed, washed it away. And there's huge community backlash. Right. And, um, and yeah, they, yeah. there was, there's uh, organizing in the community the, that basically forced the developer to fly the original artist, one of the original artists, I should say, back to Pilsen to redo it with the help of some other people. But even then it's like, they weren't as comfortable putting Che Guevara on there or Subcomandante Marcos. And instead you had other very hyper-local figures that are important, but it was an interesting right. cultural indicator that things were going to be changing. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Yeah. There's two kinds of culture washing going on there, right? Like the, I have a Frida Kahlo mural, like, you know, uh, I'm cool, I swear. And then the, the literal sort of culture, culture washing, you know, the, the sort of historic and, and properly radical mural away. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's amazing. You get these, you get these kind of mirror images like that in, in situations like this. And, um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's totally bizarre, but if you sort of like, uh, follow the money, it's really easy to see what's, what's going on. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> I just find that sort of endlessly fascinating. Um, yeah, yeah. it's just, it, it, go ahead. Go for it. Yeah, please. I would just, I just, I find just, I, I would just want to speak as a socialist too, is like, that's what, sure. that's what living in a developed capitalist nation like the United States does. It, it turns all so many aspects of your life, so many aspects of daily living into commodities, into things right. that you purchase and you sell that are branded. They can become brands versus cultural signifiers that mean something a little deeper, right? Sure. And, and that's exactly how, that's why it's infuriating to see Pilsen written about the way that it is because it's, oh, look, you know, look at this fancy little trinket here. Isn't it so cool and like ethnic and like this and that and the end result is, is to essentially sell it. And, and by selling it, you actually, you actually destroy it. You like suck the soul out right. of it and all the cultural right. significance escapes from it. Um, yeah. 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 That's a good lead into the next question that I wanted to ask you uh, because, you know, I, I think um, you, you kind of alluded to this earlier, I think, but, but, you know, a lot of people talk about, uh, well, like if you don't have the developers come around, like who who's going to do development work in the community? And I, I think it's a it's a very frequent sort of tactic of uh, more conservative elements to kind of write off um, community resistance to sort of big money developers as being sort of uh, nimby's or, or 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 something mm -hmm. like this. And um, when I think really what's going on is is um, you know, it's a, it's a question of, of who who benefits from development in the community, right? Like, exactly. and I think that's the more substantive question that's being uh, put out there um, that often gets overlooked because people just it's not the developers. Who is it? Um, and so I'm I'm wondering if you might um, just sort of like talk to us about what a kind of vision of development, um, and if that's even the right word, really, uh, but a vision of sort of equitable development might look like, um, you know, that benefits uh, sort of existing community residents and, and working class people generally. I know that's a really big question, but so, yeah. you know, uh, 
take a minute to think about it if you need, but um, yeah. Yeah. Well, if I'm, it is a big question and I guess I also want to take this opportunity to mention that like, look, we like the community values the the ostensible reasons for say this landmark occurring right and i i also i just had to mention too that the alderman's office has proposed has submitted an ordinance that would essentially be a substitute to this landmark that does um it would be essentially a moratorium a temporary moratorium on demolitions because that has definitely been a problem people are very much against that um but and this kind of gets to your to the answer to your question but it inserts an avenue for community input essentially right and that's for me that's and a lot of the community residents here and that's that's what for example the alderman really ran on is development can only be conscious can only be equitable can only be fair if the community is central to that process meaning the residents who live here um if they have a say and not just at the very end when everything's all said and done and decided but from the very beginning even before the beginning where you have community visioning what they want to see in their neighborhoods, what they need in their neighborhoods. And that's that's the whole problem is, is of course, people in the neighborhood, we want development. We want to protect our buildings. We want all of these things. We just, the community has to be involved in that process. The problem, there's such a disconnect between the money that's flowing in is controlled by a very small class of people that have very binary interests that are very just financial, direct interest and they're here to make profit they're here to make money and in a working class neighborhood the only way you make money is by pushing out the poor people and bringing in you know this you know quote unquote you know business class of tomorrow that everybody seems to think is is on the horizon but um but i mean that's that's one part of it too is sometimes when people talk about pilsen it's it's often through rose-colored glasses in a sense and that that happens through time and nostalgia does that too because i mean it was Development needs to happen here. It is, is a, it has been a, a neighborhood that has been historically disinvested from, and like for example, mm-hmm. just to even have a high school in this in this area that could actually school the uh, the children who live here and and have, for example, bilingual programs. It was a huge fight to from the community that is a massive pressure campaign in the Daily Era to um, construct what is now Benito Juarez High School. You know, and so it's just mm-hmm. it just that's the unfortunate reality is that. In order for the community to have development on its terms, development that serves itself, it has to struggle. It has to fight for it. It has to, you know, it has to just to you know rest it and take it from where mm-hmm. it is. And and that's you know we're hoping, especially now that we're getting more you know progressive and socialist-minded elected officials into office, we can start to talk about how we have processes and we can have development that puts the community basically in the driver's seat, where we say. Mm-hmm. Where instead of a developer coming in and saying, hey, look, we're looking to get, you know, a $3 million loan from the bank and we want to build a whatever, uh, an eight unit building here and these are going to be the rents, blah, 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 blah. Like, because that's unfortunately how it is right now. That's the structure of it right now. But what if instead, you know, the city would say, you know, this is a working class neighborhood. This is, uh, you know, you have people here who work their whole lives in this country, oftentimes not getting any of the benefits mm-hmm. because of, say, their undocumented status. And what if you gave back to them and said, we're going to invest back the wealth that you have given to our city, to our country, to you. We're going to give you the pot of gold that you have earned, that you have made, and we'll let you decide what you want and Mm -hmm. say, you know, we need another Casaslan. There's no, Mm -hmm. there's no, you know, there's no centers like that anymore. They're all now luxury developments. We need we need community centers. We need programs that help address violence because it's a very violent. It has historically been a violent neighborhood because, again, there's lack of opportunity. There's lack of programming. There's lack of intervention where kids need it most. You know, you look at places on the north side and you see that any and all accommodations are given to them. Uh, right. Where, you know, investments, schooling, um, programming, all, all these funds that the city and the state concoct. They somehow end up going to these places where you know the wealthy tend to live, and that's really that's really the story. Is is the community desperately needs um, investment, desperately needs development, absolutely, but it doesn't. It has to be on our terms. Sure. So yeah. that's definitely the sense. Yeah. 
That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think it's, you know, there's a lot of uh, sort of architects who are very interested in participatory projects and participatory planning. Um, but I, I think, uh, you know, one, one of the kind of downfalls of, of that is that it often kind of focuses on on the kind of individual project. Um, but I think it's been really interesting to see how the, the sort of uh, socialist alderman in Chicago City Council, uh, you know, this is uh, Alderman Laspada, Alderman Taylor, uh, you know, Alderman Sigcho Lopez, uh, Rosana Rodriguez Sanchez, Carlos Rosa, Andre Vasquez, um, you know, are really taking the lead on what not only participatory sort of community involvement looks like on an individual sort of project scale, but what it looks like uh, in terms of policy and like zoning, um, which I think is, I think is super interesting. And I would really encourage people to kind of, uh, like follow those developments closely because it's, 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 it's really interesting and, and sort of powerful stuff. Um, I think, um, we're kind of coming up on time here, mm-hmm. but I, 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 one thing that I wanted to also shout out, uh, to architects is, you know, one one of the things that I think architects could be instrumental instrumental in advocating for is an expansion of the homeowner assistance program, um, which is something that a lot of people don't know about. And I, and I hope you know just by sending us out on the radio waves, people people take advantage of it. But basically, if you're if you're a single fam, if you if you own and live in a single family house, um, you know the city will help you get a permit um, on, on a lot of things. Um, sort of free, free, free of cost, and you know, I think that's one thing that I would really like to see attached to um, just pr- proposals like this, or, or, or in in sort of communities that are being affected by gentrification, is an expansion of that program to allow uh, sort of more people to participate. Because it's it's really it's a it's not bad. It's just hard to be eligible. Um, you, know, you know, friends of the show. Uh, and Louie and Craig Reschke of Future Firm have, have sort of often advocated for an office of the public architect, right, to kind of also mm-hmm. take away some of those costs. But I'm, I'm uh, you know, that's that's from the, the sort of strictly architecture side of things. I'm curious if uh, before you go, uh, you can kind of tell us, uh, you know, where to find more information online uh, if people want to get involved and sort of how people can um, support this, this sort of ongoing struggle um, and, and, and do more. Yeah. So um, there is a variety of ways to get involved and learn more. So I think almost every single publication in the city has not written about the landmark at this point. I think actually Mm -hmm. yesterday or the day before, no, it was yesterday. The uh, of all newspapers, the Chicago Tribune, their editorial board came out um, against the landmark, and it was actually a really good piece. Wow. They came in and they interviewed some of the residents who were organizing here against it, and um, I guess the crux. But I mean, there's Block Club has covered it. WBEZ, Cranes. There's one of the homeowners that's directly affected wrote uh, wrote an op-ed in Cranes that was really good. Um, there's quite a lot of material out there. There's also the you know the um, the report that the actual landmark commission came out with that they're supposed to come out with before these things is actually very interesting uh, to read about the history of the neighborhood. Um, but if you want to get involved, I would say the, uh, there's a primary organization you may want to focus on at this point would be Pilsen Alliance. Um, mm-hmm. They have, you can reach out to them by, by email. I think it's uh, info. Let me find it really quick. Let's see. Yeah. It's uh, info at the Pilsen you could email them. I mean, we had a we had some, we have some we've been doing some beautiful demonstrations of, of opposition and in a way affirmation of the community here. We had a caravan um, a week and a half ago down 18th Street that was you know had more than 20 cars. It was really nice, um, and um, and yeah, things are ongoing. So definitely reach out if you want to get involved. If you want to help, we could use all the help we can get. Um, we're hoping to get a vote to to defeat this thing and then put in place policies that actually protect the residents here. So, and also want to thank you, Kiefer, because, you know, people like yourself, people who, you know, are having conversations about these issues that may at first seem very technical and wonky, but when you dig deeper, actually very, you know, fundamental and and very important. Um, So, yeah, thank you, Kiefer, for covering these kinds of topics. yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah. That's, uh, that's the, that's one of the missions of the show is to kind of try to demystify this stuff. Um, you know, to point out that, yeah, like a lot of the wonkishness, like sometimes it's real and, and sometimes it's there to kind of, 
you know, <laughs> hide things. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, really, if, if you're, if you, um, you know, are sort of involved and engaged uh, with what's going on in your community and, and you're in, and you kind of take the effort to become organized, um, you know, these things become a lot more clear. It's, it's a lot easier to do this with, uh, with, with comrades and friends and neighbors than it is on your own. Uh, so I hope, I hope people will, uh, will take, take a moment to, to kind of get engaged. Even if you're not in Chicago, I'm, I, 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 I can absolutely guarantee that something similar is probably going down wherever you are. <laughs> That's right. So thank, thanks, Diego. And yeah, just uh, anything else that uh, you wanted to say that you haven't had a chance to say before we uh, 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 part ways here? Uh, no, I guess just um, just thank you again for the opportunity. Everybody listening, you know, get if you're not involved yet, get involved. Talk to your neighbors. You know, get to know your neighborhood. Get to know this is a, especially if you live in Chicago. This is a city of of neighborhoods, and that that's more than a marketing slogan. You know, it means something. Um, there's a lot of beautiful people that live here, and many people be surprised in these you know, quote unquote, interesting times. Um, people can feel very helpless. People can feel like everything is going down the drain, and and it is very dark. But I think people will be surprised what you can accomplish if you just band together with the people around you and the people that you trust, good comrades, good neighbors, good friends. Um, that's how the world has changed before. And that's how it's going to change for the better if it does. So I encourage everybody, let's get, uh, let's get involved. A perfect place to leave it. Diego, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, open invitation to buildings on air. Uh, so we'll catch you. We'll catch you next time. This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay and Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at... B-L-D-G-S on air or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes.